but once we once we start the podcast my opinions will just rain down from above because i have a lot of opinions all my baboon friends agree with me hi everyone welcome back to the syntax podcast today i'm here with guest andrew making a repeat occurrence Okay, no, stop. What is a repeat occurrence? Stop. <laughs> <laughs> appearance. Appearance. <laughs> Andrew has recurred on this podcast. I'm back, everyone. Really? Yeah, I'll disclose all my pack donations. <laughs> <laughs> I, unlike all the Democratic primary candidates... I am accepting Super PAC. <laughs> <laughs> we should say that. <laughs> For all the Super PACs with nowhere to give their money, we are accepting. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Syntax Podcast. I'm here today with Andrew, making a repeat appearance on the show. Hey, everyone. Andrew here in Chicago. And uh, Fernando. Hello. Also a repeat. Repeat. <laughs> Technically, Fernando has been on the pod before. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about some articles in Scientific American that came out in a recent issue. Um, we're looking at this as sort of a, a book review style discussion, just like we've done in the past with um, Dataclism and Yuval Noah Harari's uh, Sapiens. Sapiens. So It's also definitely Dataclism, but moving on. Mm, disagree. But... Um, <laughs> We are going to go through these four articles and probably not spend exactly the same amount of time on each, but go through and say what the takeaways were and what our our opinions are on the articles themselves. And I think Fernando is going to moderate us as we walk through. Yeah, I really got to rein in these hotheads, you know, but uh, the general format, it's four articles. They all deal with the central theme of a scientific look at inequality in our society um, but beyond that theme, the, it's not like the chapters of the books that we've reviewed previously. They're, they kind of exist independently. So we'll talk about each one separately. And at the end, maybe some closing thoughts on the, on the article as a whole. Um, the first article is called A Rigged Economy. It is by uh, Joseph, Stiglitz. Joseph Stiglitz from Columbia. And... This was a media article with a lot of content that touches on a lot of different fields. So do one of you kind of want to give a summary on it? Ethan, go for it. Yeah. So the first article uh, is written by this guy, Joseph Stiglitz. Uh, he's a Nobel Prize winner. And I would say it's, uh, it's quite reasonable to say he goes in with an agenda. But he is discussing what he calls the rigged economy quote unquote, uh, and essentially is making the case that the the infrastructure, the laws of the U.S. Um, are such that inequality is necessarily higher here than in other places. And because of that, we experience a wide range of economic and peripherally economic problems. And these are all attributable to the system that causes this inequality. And essentially, I mean, the word rig gets, throws, gets thrown around quite a lot, but essentially he's making the case um, that the American political system is exacerbating inequality. And so it's just a feedback loop of things getting worse. Would you guys uh, want to add anything to that before we jump into our thoughts? Yeah. The one thing I, he does point out um, is he talks about how there are some negative consequences of inequality um, and points to some 
concrete examples, the validity of which I'm sure everyone has a different opinion on, but I think that's interesting uh, just because a lot of people, it's hard to say whether inequality is inherently a good or bad thing, um, but the court, he tries to draw a correlation between inequality and more concrete negative consequences, and if those correlations hold, I think that's a useful bit of information for us. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'll keep going, Andrew. I was going to say, there's something that I hope we're able to touch on kind of what we discussed. I think one of the more interesting things was the, um, kind of in the article, there's a, there's a graph showing kind of uneven distribution of global growth, showing that um, kind of there's rising incomes and emerging economies and what he'd call the booming global elite um, and kind of the declining middle class of US in the US and Western Europe. And I think that would be definitely interesting for us to touch on um, as, we, as we discuss the article. Mm-hmm. All right, Ethan, what were some of the highlights that <clears throat> Stiglitz brings up here? Yeah. Um, well, okay. So let me let me open my thoughts with some introduction. So I've already mentioned to these guys, uh, Fernando and Andrew, that I'm probably going to talk the most about this article by far, and I have very strong opinions about it. Uh, to summarize, I think that this guy presents utterly uncompelling evidence for something that I'm actually fairly inclined to listen to. I think his his argument has been well made by others, but his case is incredibly weak and he comes off as just like an ivory tower economist who has no no patience for people that aren't already on his side. I don't think anybody who didn't agree with him coming in could possibly be persuaded by this piece. Um, repeatedly in here, he makes these claims that have no evidence at all. Uh, The second sentence of the article itself says, The life prospects of a young American depend more on the income and education of his or her parents than in almost any other advanced country. At no point is there any data on that. Um, There's another thing here. Wages at the bottom adjusted for inflation are about the same as they were 60 years ago. I mean, that's that kind of economic stuff is rarely so straightforward. And again, no citing. And the whole article just reads like this guy assumes you're already on his side. And honestly... I mean, what I wrote down was this feels really Trumpian, actually. It's like really, really uh, fear-mongering and just stirring up discontent and blaming things on sort of abstract ideas with very little evidence. Um, he cites real problems without very clear uh, evidence of the causation. He just he just says it's because of this. And, and I think once in here I circled it because he gave an example of something that made sense. Um, he, uh, I'll, I'll find it as I look through here, but, uh, so many of these things I just found to be really, really poorly put. Um, so my, my feedback on this is going to be really negative and I'll go through things in more depth, but that's how I would open up. So what did you guys think? Yeah. The one point I'll make on that about, um, the dependence of income versus, or the dependence of someone's income on their parents' income, he does have the stat of how the percentage of children who are making more than their parents has declined over the past 50 years or so. Um, so I'd say it's not the exact same thing. I don't see that, but I, I'm sure you're uh, On right. the second page, it's not the exact same thing, but it kind of does get to that point. Yeah. Oh, the other thing I'll throw in here is um, he really loses credibility in my mind because it, it seems like he's actually he's actually sort of constructing a straw man because he wants to make fun of people who disagree with him. And so there's this paragraph on the second page. Um, 
Defenders of America's inequality have a pat explanation. They refer to the workings of a competitive market, where the laws of supply and demand determine wages, prices, and even interest rates, a mechanical system much like that describing the physical universe. Those with scarce assets or skills are amply rewarded, they argue, because of larger contributions they make to the economy. What they get merely represents what they have contributed. And then then he goes on to say, that's a fictional narrative, and I've never believed this, whatever, whatever. But the problem is that those are two really different thoughts, right? Like, the first thing he says there is that supply and demand determine wages, prices, and interest rates, like a mechanical system. And just because you believe that doesn't mean that you think it is just that the people at the top are taking away more money. Like, one is, one is a statement of scientific fact, which maybe we don't know is true. But the second is a value judgment. And you don't have to believe the second to believe the first. I think, in many ways, this guy comes off as a... He has a he has a grudge and is not willing. To, he doesn't write in an open minded way whatsoever. I think it's just really, really a, a poor article. What do you what do you got, Andrew? I so it's interesting because I so I also t- I tend to find myself. I think Ethan you'd you'd mentioned like people who aren't already on his side probably aren't convinced by. It. I I find myself kind of already on his side so. I I didn't I don't think read it quite as critically as you did. Um, I mean I think at a macro scale I, mean, I think he's talking about things that are are likely true kind of and I guess you're making a good point that maybe there's kind of a finer comb that I should have read through the article with. Um, but he's kind of I mean just at a high level kind of critiquing um, kind of Reagan Thatcher economic policy that's kind of post sixties. Um, and which, which I guess is kind of a common critique of the left. Although you could, you could argue there's kind of the, I mean, like the Bill Clinton left was also quite kind of along those kind of economic lines. Um, I think the one part that I, um, did find like a lot of critique in is, um, I think he, again, of course, this article is kind of talking about the United States, and I think he compares two other countries in some instances, um, but he kind of makes like a quick dive into, and to find it in kind of the opioid crisis, but it doesn't really compare it to like, I had kind of written like, is there evidence for this in other places? Like, is this causality or correlation? Like, what is he trying to get at here? Um, so, I mean, I think overall at a high level, I think he makes decent points whether or not they're kind of backed up again i probably wasn't as critical because i tended to agree with what he was what he was saying um but i i do agree with kind of ethan in his in his stance that um it it, it does come across as a bit kind of ivory towerish and maybe maybe that means i do too i don't know <laughs> i do agree with um like from a big picture point of view i think he points out he makes some valid points and they're like I said, the big picture. And I don't think they're anything particularly new or original. He talks about how, um, different ways that political power is distributed can cause, um, those who have money and influence to maintain their money and influence. Right. Like that's not, I don't think that's untrue. I also don't think that's, but he a, doesn't, he doesn't even give any evidence of that. He just says it's true. That's like the theme of the whole article. Right. He just tells. But he, he he proposes mechanisms for for how that for how that happens, and I don't I'm think they're particularly sure new, but, that, but um, they're worth mentioning at least, even though 
he doesn't necessarily pair them with showing that they cause negative outcomes or a recommendation to to change that. I found one good point in the entire article, and I looked for them and couldn't find any. Um, and it was, let me see here. This is the only case I found where he actually had reasoning based on examples of like how the world actually works. He said, technological changes have concentrated market power in the hands of a few global players, in part because of so-called network effects. Yeah, the exact same part. You are, yeah, yeah. You are far more likely to join a particular social network or use a certain word processor if everyone you know is already using it. Once established, a firm such as Facebook or Microsoft is hard to dislodge. Moreover, fixed costs, such as that of developing a piece of software, have increased as compared with marginal costs, that of duplicating the software. A new entrant has to bear all these fixed costs up front, and if it does enter, the rich incumbent can respond by lowering prices drastically. The cost of making an additional ebook or photo editing program is essentially zero. That that's really good. That's like very thoughtful. That's exactly like that is a real problem we're dealing with right now. We haven't figured out how to how to apply monopoly regulations to these companies that are natural aggregators. And sure, that's like excellent. Um, I just couldn't find anything else in here. And there were some things where I, I just thought he was off the rails. So um, there's a bit here that says banks routinely indulge in practices that are legal but should not be, such as imposing, and I'm not sure how you say this word, usurious, um, whatever the adjective of usury is, usurious interest rates on borrowers or exorbitant fees on merchants for credit and debit cards and creating securities that are designed to fail. Okay, well, that's like obviously a value, value judgment, but okay, maybe. And the next sentence is, they also frequently do things that are illegal, including market manipulation and insider trading. He just like throws around this accusation that like illegal things are happening all the time. Oh, there's not even a, an article in a newspaper where it's like somebody did this once. There's not a single piece of evidence to this. It's just like, oh, banks are doing illegal things. Um and if you're, I just think you have a, a responsibility if you're going to write an article that seems like science to have some science in it. It's so, so bad. Yeah, so um, to the first part of what you said where you're talking about um, the point that you agreed with, that was in the same section that I thought was the strongest, the section that uh, the header is feedback loop. And so yeah. like he has this sentence here. Political inequality in its turn gives rise to more economic inequality as the rich use their political power to shape the rules of the game in ways that favor them, for instance, by softening antitrust laws and weakening unions. Not at all original, but I think worth stating, um, not entirely, like he doesn't propose specific pieces of evidence, although he does mention antitrust laws, but that is an important point, I think, to keep in the back of your mind when you think about how an economic and political system interact with each other in general. So I guess that was that was what I was getting to when I talk about the big picture strokes that I appreciate. And then on the second part of what he said, another example of something that he states, which may or may not be true, but doesn't pr provide any evidence to back up his point, is... Beyond that, we need more progressive taxation and high-quality, federally-funded public education, including affordable access to universities for all, no ruinous loans allowed, or no ruinous loans required. So here, I think he makes a statement that we need progressive taxation, which may or may not be true, but that's not something that you can say without giving any evidence or even like going into the mechanisms of how how that would better distribute um 
or fix the quote rigged economy. That's not something I necessarily disagree with, but there's no strong evidence one way or the other, and he doesn't offer any. And then when he talks about high qu- high quality federally funded public education, like yeah, obviously high quality education that you don't need to pay for would be great. Um, but if we knew how to do that, we would have cracked that nut a while ago. So those yeah. are where. In that same section, um, this is in his restoring justice mm-hmm. section, which is his wrap up. Also, the whole thing just kind of, I don't know, reeks of condescension in my mind. But um, like he knows better than I mean, everybody that's else. all economics professors, but true. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe that is true. Um, but early on in the section, he's talking about all the problems and how um, how the rich are in a position that the poor are not and that they have these advantages. And he says, Then again, the children of the rich come to think of themselves as a class apart, entitled to their good fortune, and accordingly more likely to break the rules necessary for making society function. Like, where did that come from? It's just like, it's just such a weird shot at people individually and they're like, their their personal morals. It's really weird, I think. And it again, it comes off as like a guy with a grudge. Um, and it it just really is no place in a scientific article. Like these are these are bad people that have no respect for everyone. That else. is definitely I don't something think... that you can't say without um, without any sort of any sort of like yeah. I, I think well, I mean, we can spend as much time on this as you guys want, but I feel that this guy might have earned too much credibility by winning a Nobel Prize, and now <laughs> the magazine wanted to include a piece from him or something. Because this piece doesn't even feel like it was edited. It's like, this is trash. Anyway, strong strong feelings over here. One other thing <laughs> is... Um, I, I'll keep going as long well, as... I was, um, okay, go ahead. One other thing is, uh, he points out here, chief executives in the U.S., uh, compensate themselves 361 times more than the average worker, far more than in other developed countries. Well, yeah, we have the four largest companies by market cap. Uh, like we, a statement that that the disparity is larger doesn't necessarily mean that we have more poor people. Like that's a statement that could be attributable to so many things, like the fact that we have all of the biggest companies. The the comp- this country is not like others, and it's a real case that that's a problem. Like that. And I, I mentioned this very briefly at the beginning, but like I am pretty sympathetic to that case. The inequality is a problem and all the things that he mentions are real issues. But I think that he undermines his own argument. Like this is exactly the kind of of poor argument that gets you set up to just have your your legs taken out by the other side. Like what are what are you doing here? Because all of these points are so poorly made and so it's like the ultimate bubble argument where you just assume that everybody agrees with all your premises before you actually write the piece. And it, it just lends itself to be undercut by really any amount of research and rhetoric from the other side. I'll shut up. <laughs> I, I guess I, I was pausing to let Andrew hop in, but then it was just no, I think I think it's interesting to like, you, you'd said the, the one point that you made that you kind of really appreciated was um kind of about the kind of agglomeration of of major companies right um kind of the monopoly sense that they have of sorts and i guess i'm no expert on this issue but i think it's interesting to kind of um one look kind of back historically to like microsoft in the late 1990s and as well as kind of the what's going on in europe currently um with kind of i guess not necessarily breaking up the companies but more strict laws around what Facebook and Google are doing. I saw just recently kind of the first 
major fine from Google was was kind of um, put out by the European Union. And I guess it's not necessarily in the context of his article, but just kind of in my own kind of musings about um, he's identifying an issue. And it's inter- it'd be interesting to see or to, to hear kind of more of a comparison to um, kind of what's going on or what has gone on in the U.S. in the case of Microsoft in the late 1990s, um, as well as what's currently going on in Europe. And, and I'm not an expert on either of the issues, but um, mm-hmm. it would be interesting to kind of if he had dug a little more into that. It is pretty interesting. I agree. Um, so if you guys are familiar with GDPR, I forget what it stands for, but it's the, the major privacy regulation in Europe that has gotten a lot of um, news. Yeah. A lot of news. Yeah. Because it's basically forcing every company that stores user data to disclose what they're going to store and to only store things that are necessary. And it puts very heavy fines on them for certain actions with the data. Um, and like, at a surface level, that seems really good, but I actually think it might entrench the established players even further because mm-hmm. doing that kind of stuff is really expensive. And the only places that have the money to do that are Google and Facebook. Um, and I, I like this, these conversations get complicated quickly. But what I want out of one of these articles is an acknowledgement of how complicated the problems are, that these things don't have easy answers. And it, it is rarely so simple as what this guy is proposing, that like everything we're doing is wrong and we just need to stop it. Um, a lot of the regulation we propose has unexpected side effects, and I think that's probably going to happen with GDPR. And so who knows what I, – it's it's just really hard to take someone seriously who says they have all the answers. Yeah, and as far as comparing the U.S. and Western Europe, um, for parts of his article, he, he lumps them together. Like he has this graph that shows a, the decline of the middle class in U.S. and Western Europe. And so he's kind of lumping the economic data together. Um, but then he also calls for like a movement towards more progressive taxation and uh, state-funded education, which is more prevalent in those same countries that he earlier cites as suffering from the same issues of a declining middle class as the U.S. So um, that's an example of like what Ethan was saying, where potentially opening his own argument to just be undercut by its inconsistency. If anyone doesn't have any further thoughts on that, we can move on to the next article in the series. We'll see if it elicits the same fiery response from Ethan. But this article is called The Health Wealth Gap. It is by Professor Sapolsky, who is a biological professor, or a professor of biology. (laughs) (laughs) He is a human professor. He is not a machine learning algorithm. He is a human professor of biology at Stanford. And what this article talks about is how inequality causes um, health problems for those generally on the wrong end of that unequal spectrum. But he also points out how it causes issues all along the spectrum. He talks about both big picture issues of public health and society, um, but also goes into a very specific, a spe- very specific level what some of the actual biological mechanisms at the cellular and chemical level are that that manifest these problems caused by inequality. Um, it's a pretty wide-ranging article. It goes into a lot more detail about certain aspects of the human body and how difficult social conditions and lower social economic status actually affect those, which I thought was really interesting. Um, any thought, overall thoughts on this article, guys? I thought it was good. I liked it. Um, it's not my favorite thing I ever read. I, I mean, basically... It really is a scientific examination of um, 
things that are caused by socioeconomic factors. So it rapidly changes from a discussion of like economics and politics and national welfare into low level the science of like what's going wrong it, we spend a lot of time on telomeres which are like the ends of uh, chromosomes like this is actually a biology article which was which was good it wasn't the most interesting thing ever like i said but um i have few bones to pick with this one yeah i, I thought one of the, the kind of more interesting quotes um that kind of he had in the article was poor health is not so much about being poor as it is feeling poor um and it kind of I don't know. I, I think that for me, and I have to go find exactly kind of more detail in the article, um, I think it kind of opens like a new perspective to to poverty in a way that most people don't look at. I think it's often kind of seen as, right, or like the World Health Organization will say poverty is X amount of dollars per day, right, that you earn. Um, but I think this kind of um, adds a different perspective and adds a different kind of background to like how we conceive of poverty and, and i would and i would argue when i think of poverty i think of dollars and cents pretty much right off the bat but um thinking about kind of it is broader than that and i think that that's kind of what i found most interesting about the article right and mm-hmm. so kind of mentioned when discussing the last one but i think there's just this very big question um in general about is inequality in itself a problem like if the country as a whole is well off doesn't matter that income is distributed unevenly and i think some of those uh things that he brings up of how what does he say he says like at every step down the ladder from starting with jeff jeff bezos Bezos at the top every step down the ladder is associated with worse health so if that's true um that's an argument in favor of inequality actually being problematic in itself well, no, that's not really the case, right? Because it it could be so that just the very richest people have extraordinarily good health outcomes. It doesn't mean inequality is bad. The, the question is, does being, does having really rich people compared to you in your society hurt you? Which actually is answered in this article. And yes, the yes, yes. No, that's a good clarification. Um, and another interesting point he brings up is when he talks about this gradient of health outcomes becoming more negative as you go down the ladder of socioeconomic status, he says, this gradient exists in countries with universal health care. If care availability was truly responsible, universal access should make the gradient vanish. Um, again. Yeah, I thought that was interesting, too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he, he has a couple, I don't know, a couple sections that I just thought were really well put. Like, this read like a science article. This belonged in Scientific American. Um, the so, editors, will be, the like, editors of Scientific American will be... Pleased to hear that feedback. <laughs> Honored, I'm sure, yes. Um, yeah, so he calls out this thing called the secession of the wealthy, uh, which is the idea that especially as there's greater inequality in a society, the wealthiest people spend more and more of their resources escaping the not wealthy people, which is really interesting and, and actually does hold up, unlike all the things I ripped on in the last article. Um because he, he talks about how you will find, like, country clubs are basically a walled community away from poorer people. Um, and they're giving money to politicians who help them maintain their status, he says. And all of this stuff is building walls to keep the the uh, less wealthy people out of their lives because it's stressful for them to have to deal with those things. And that actually makes a lot of sense and rings true, I think. No, I think th- I read that I read that line as well. I also have it kind of quoted in my notes. And it r- reminded me of a book I had read um, probably about a year ago called dream hoarders 
um, and just kind of how the American upper middle class is leaving everyone else in the dust, why that is a problem and what to do about it. Um, and, and the argument he makes actually is that often kind of in our, in our discussion, it's like the 99% and the 1%, right? Um, and he's, and what the book is arguing is that it's really kind of the top 20%, um, that's kind of walling off the kind of bottom 80% of, of the American population to, um, kind of these gains that we're talking about in socioeconomic status. And so kind of when I read this article and saw kind of the secession of the wealthy, that's like immediately where my mind went to is, um, kind of in a, in a broader context, like it's, it's, um, it really is kind of the, I don't know what call it, the country club effect that you're talking about, Ethan, but like in some ways, yes, it is. So. Yeah. Um, I guess we should call it the core thesis of this article, right? Is that, that stress, particularly from low socioeconomic status has real physical effects on the body and, and its long-term development, specifically around, um, the way your chromosomes replicate, I believe. Uh, and particularly this is relevant in your early years. So for children, if they're raised in a situation which is relatively economically disadvantaged, um, there are like lasting effects on their body that are attributable to the stress that they experience. Uh, but interestingly, these things are mitigated if they have good care from their parents. So they specifically say here, lucking out with a mother who has the time and energy to be highly nurturing reduces the ill effects. Um, and I, so that's that's like the, the main takeaway I had from this article. Um, I did think it was funny because the author is clearly like a scientist who has studied these things very extensively. And in the second paragraph after that, he just throws in the sentence, my own work with baboons living freely <laughs> on the East African savanna has shown this effect. <laughs> and I just, I thought that was oddly very funny to just have in the article. That's like pretty standard in scientific American. Um, that, yeah, like they just casually mention like, oh, I do this thing and I'll say, say it as if it's totally yeah. normal. But, all my baboon friends agree with me. Uh, he also has this one sentence that's, that struck me I thought was really interesting. There are long-term effects. More financial losses in the Great Recession predict higher C-reactive protein levels six years later. Now, I'm not going to pretend to know what a C-reactive <laughs> protein level is, but I do think it's really instructive that, that we can actually diagnose physical signs of um, earlier socioeconomic stress in someone's life. That's really interesting. And that, that does totally reframe the way we've been thinking about these things. And the article goes on to say that the, the main results of this stress later in life are that your decision-making abilities suffer. And that is super interesting, right? Because it explains why it may be more difficult than you'd expect to raise people out of poverty, um, because they actually are at a cognitive disadvantage after they experience stress in their childhood. It's not genetic, but it is significant through people who have already experienced these problems. Right. And I think this is really interesting because there's a lot of people who argue about, do we truly have equal opportunity? Like, you know, with all the opportunities available in the country, even those who are born to less money or in certain situations, the theoretically, they have access to, you know, public education and all these things. Um, and this provides some scientific evidence to show that the playing field in terms of what is theoretically available might be equal, but the starting points to access those are often not equal. Uh, I think that's a point that a lot of people believe, but not a lot of people can articulate or provide evidence to support it. Um, one of the overall concepts he talks about here is the allostatic load. 
and um, that's the cost of being exposed to essentially stress and its biological manifestations, which are um, constant fluctuations in your hormones and constant activation of certain neural pathways. Basically, that's, like I said, the physical manifestations of stress. And kind of like Ethan said, that manifests itself with um, different levels of proteins, uh, different indicators in the blood. He talks about uh, increase in blood pressure, cholesterol, blood lipids, um, and goes into some very detailed examples about how the amygdala, which is the part of your brain that processes fear and anxiety, is more active among people who have experienced a higher allostatic load as a result of lower social economic status, um, reduced response to insulin in the metabolism, all sorts of super detailed um, examples, which, as Eden said, none of us are super qualified to discuss at length, but I think it's worth pointing out that he, these aren't hand-waved explanations. He, he, he points to specific examples. He also questions the causation around things, which we did not see a single time in the last article. And so um, he taught, let's see, so this is near the end. Why should a transient sense of lower SES, socioeconomic status, induce cognitive changes typical of lower SES in the real world? One explanation is that it is a rational response because it is hard to think about squirreling away money for old age if you can barely buy groceries. Poverty makes the future a less relevant place. But there's also a powerful stress-related explanation. So, and I won't I won't go into like the whole rest of the paragraph, but the point here is that this is a scientific approach where this guy is is showing us multiple possible causes for an effect that he has observed. And I think that is exactly what you want in a place like this. And this should give some credibility to the author. Right, because he's not making assumptions that he knows what causes all the effects he observes, because for one thing, that's not very good science. And for another, you just don't when you have these observations. Um, and so I just, I found him easy to take seriously, and I I felt that I actually learned a lot from this article. Andrew, do you want to bring us to the third article? Yeah, we can take it there. So the, the third article is called, called Automating Bias, and it is written by Virginia Eubanks, who's an associate professor of political science at the University of Albany. Um, and kind of at a high level, she kind of opens the article by talking about the state of Indiana, um, essentially privatizing the eligibility process for Indiana's welfare programs, um, essentially kind of moving it to from kind of state run to, I think IBM is one of the companies she mentions, um, with the idea that kind of um, digitizing it and, and privatizing it, that it would be um, kind of more efficient and also kind of uh, more fair to the people of, of Indiana. And kind of to make a long story short, um, the result was after about three years, um, there's 1 million benefits denials, um, which was a 54% increase from the previous three years, um, ended, up, ended up canceling the, the contract itself. Um, it, it, what it really kind of dives into is... Um, and I think it was interesting. It was kind of a topic that I saw kind of recently talked about in politics um, is kind of the, the bias that kind of is in our kind of everyday lives, like makes their way into to algorithms. And I think one of the, the quotes that um, I kind of pulled from initially was that the idea that 
kind of people perceive poverty kind of as primarily a systems engineering problem. That and I think really kind difficult. of the, the three of us as kind of as engineers, um, I mean, I think a lot of times see problems that are just kind of like, well, if we get the math right, right? Like if we can kind of figure out the kind of engineering behind this, then, then it would only solve everything. And I think this kind of parallel, this article parallels that in a lot of ways. Um, that kind of there's, there's this idea that um, if you just kind of privatize, digitize, then it'll be equitable. It'll be it'll be better for, for all. But um, yeah, Professor Eubanks is kind of in this article showing that's not necessarily the case. But I'm not sure she did succeed in showing that, right? So her claim is um, that we can't treat this as a systems engineering problem. You know, just finding the right solution and implementing it won't solve the problem. And I, I don't think at well, any point... Well, I wouldn't phrase it like that. Clear. I wouldn't phrase it like that. Because, like, obviously, yes, finding okay. the right solution would fix the problem. But but that's what that's what it's solutions engineering is. <laughs> like, what else is Well, it? but it's the question of do we just need to... It, the way... She, I think what she means is those who view it as a systems engineering problem think that all the right pieces are in place in terms of basic resources... Um, and we just need to allocate them more efficiently. Um, maybe this is a semantic difference. I don't know. But versus her view, which is our fundamental um, ways of, like, I don't want to say morals, but the values that we use to shape how our systems work. That's where the flaw is. And maybe that's the same thing. I don't know. Um, it, I don't know. It strikes me that it almost necessarily is a systems engineering problem in a lot of ways. You know, you see the stat pretty regularly and I don't have a citation, which is great hypocrisy. <laughs> I just criticized that guy in the first article, but this is a podcast. So um, you see the the stat sometimes that we produce way more than enough mm-hmm. food to feed everyone in the world, but not everybody gets food. And I, I think that that sort of thing is common. Like that is a common systems issue. Like quite often resources are allocated poorly and we could allocate things more efficiently. Like I... I'm far from convinced that this is purely a values problem. There are ways we could better allocate things, and it would really help with inequality. Yeah, I guess the difference is um, it's not a question. It's not merely a question of, oh, our train schedules and our delivery trucks are not being used efficiently enough. It's also deep-seated problems of um, our society making it difficult for people in certain positions to access all the plentiful resources we have, which is still a systems Maybe. engineering problem, but on a different scale than just like we need to optimize distribution. So um, the driving example of this article is the story of the state of Indiana hiring IBM to implement a web interface for people to sign up for um, what specific type of benefits um. I'm not sure if it was unemployment or what, but it, it was some kind of welfare system. Yeah, it just says welfare programs, and I don't think it says specifically. Okay. Um, and, and so she makes the case that later in the article, at least, that, that the problem is that they're trying to automate this. But in reality, when you read, um, she says the state failed to digitize, dec- digitize decades of paperwork requiring recipients to resubmit all their documentation. The rigid automated system was unable to differentiate between an honest mistake, a bureaucratic error, and an applicant's attempt to commit fraud. Every glitch, whether a forgotten signature or a software error, was interpreted as a potential crime. And yeah, that sounds like a huge problem, but that sounds a lot like an implementation problem. That sounds like they did a terrible job of implementing a solution. That doesn't mean that this idea was bad. 
It's, it's like serious hindsight bias, and I don't think it stands up very well. I mean, obviously, my priors are that technology is going to solve a lot of problems. I am I'm sort of a techno-optimist, and in general, I think that systems engineering is the answer to most things. Um, and I don't doubt that it would be great if we gave more resources to you know, helping people who are unemployed and stuff. But I think that actually there are a lot of resources out there. And you even look at, you know, you read reviews of some of these organizations that are giving aid, and I'm not going to say any because I don't know enough about it. But sometimes you hear that these places are paying their CEO exorbitant amounts of money and whatever. Um, and so resource allocation is a place that we we really have a great deal of gain to find. And it, it just feels like her argument over us needing to change our values, not our systems, doesn't really ring very true i do so i agree with you that she doesn't really back up her case about uh this indiana welfare program very well um another reason being like okay let's say a certain number a lot more people did get denied certain welfare benefits then the question is like okay what is the state doing with that money um in lieu of those specific programs and maybe they're not using it for any good purpose, but in some ways that's the whole point of optimization. Like you take the money away from where it's not being used as well and hopefully putting it to somewhere that it's making more of an impact. And she doesn't really go into that, but I think um, kind of a more important point once we get past that section is how our, our data sets that inform a lot of decisions that are being made now suffer from she calls it bias and i mean a lot of times it is bias but i mean it's really just that the output reflects the data set that's put into it and i think this is really relevant because uh big data processing is informing more and more of the decisions in our society now and so she talks about uh what's the example she used um well, she talks about this University of Pittsburgh uh, study yeah. trial, yeah, where they tried to predict uh, which children mm-hmm. would be essentially like should be taken away from their parents. Um, but and, well, let me summarize real fast before I go into some critiques. So the researchers used child placement, which is when a report made on a child is screened in for investigation and results in him or her being placed in foster care as a proxy for child harm. Um, and then they use this data set to predict which families were most likely to have children that should be taken away because of this child harm issue. Um, and the problem, of course, I mean, this is super predictable, right? The problem is that it over-targets minorities. And I, I just read this, and it reads exactly like the last thing she said. Because, again, this is an implementation problem. Like, anybody with any data science experience who's thinking rigorously about the problem knows that if you if you select um, as your, your training data whether a human thought that this was a problem or not, it reflects all the human biases because you're just training to replicate what the human's decision was. And again, like this is just like these are implementation. Yes, but so these aren't ideas. I, I don't think that that is a universally like acknowledged fact. Um, that maybe that in data issue, science it is I would right, say. but and this kind of like speaks to a wider problem of lack of data literacy in a very data driven world that the decision makers who are choosing to implement this program aren't necessarily asking those questions and the problems only come up with hindsight. I mean, I know this was like a trial study. It wasn't an actually implemented program, but, um, yeah, no, I, I guess. I, yeah, I kind of off of 
Frando's idea. I, I think maybe outside of the data science world, I mean, again, I, I had seen something recently kind of um, out of DC that someone was talking about the, the bias and kind of algorithms for minority populations, just as you said, Ethan. And there's a critique that like this person must be crazy, like math isn't bias. But so I, I think there is kind of a broader problem of connecting the issues of policymaking and understanding the kind of technical know-how as well. Um, but I, yeah, I mean, I and agreed. This is... I mean, Ethan, I think you, you kind of took apart the issue really well, but I think there's a disconnect between maybe people who are in data science and people who, who aren't as fluent in that language. Um, and, and this is written yeah, by, a, so. by someone in a political science department. So, I mean, my hope would be that she brings up these issues among those who are looking at like the political side of things um, so that the people who are thinking about what should be implemented have some understanding of the technical questions and potential problems that need to be looked at. And, and of course that's true, but like nobody trained this algorithm without a data scientist. Like somebody was involved in this process who has the technical expertise to say this is a bad idea, right? I, and that's where I lose it because I, I don't get... You know, it would be great if everybody understood every subject, but nobody's going to know everything about data science when this happens. And you need the practitioners to have the skills to say, like, this is obviously stupid. Like, let's think about what we're doing here. We're just retraining exactly the same decisions humans were making with all the same problems they made them with. Well, um, when you uh, when you find a society where through, but... when you find a society where everyone's competent in the fields that they're supposed to be competent in, let me know. Yeah, but now we're asking people to be competent in the fields that they're not even supposed to be competent in. <laughs> yeah as a safeguard right, against course, as a safeguard right. against that first problem um yeah okay you want to move on want to talk about the last article ethan yeah so um so the last article is about how inequality affects the environment basically and the author is james boyce so he's another professor uh economics and let me see i'm reading his description here economics at the university of massachusetts amherst so Boyce is essentially citing a bunch of examples where the inequality in the people who are harmed by some kind of economic situation, um, the inequality between them and the, the power holders in society, either rich people or people with political power, results in bad economic or bad environmental policy being pushed through. Um, and so he, he highlights um, the oil pipeline through, I think it was North Dakota. Looking Standing right. Rock, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that people protested because it potentially could leak and uh, really hurt their water supply. But eventually it got pushed through. And um, basically over and over he says, like, look how the people in power take advantage of the people who are not in power. Yes, any thoughts? Yeah, so he makes a point that when kind of individuals who are most harmed by these decisions are brought into the decision-making process, um, that you kind of have better outcomes overall. And I keep referencing other books, and I, I apologize, but I just finished reading Development is Freedom. At least you're citing something. <laughs> I didn't cite anything. <laughs> Development is Freedom um, by Amartya Sen. And he kind of makes the argument that like freedom is both kind of the aims and the means of development. And that the kind of only way to achieve freedom, as he talks about, is kind of more freedom. And, and one of the examples, the pertinent examples he gives is kind of birth rate, um, like how many children are women having? And, and the, in order to reduce that, 
you actually kind of give, you don't restrict freedoms of women. You, and you kind of give women freedom um, by kind of allowing them access to education, kind of more, a greater social standing. Um, and I think that kind of is, a, at least how I read this article, is, is not dissimilar to what he's talking about kind of with um, communities that are affected in negative ways by environmental decisions in that if you kind of bring them into the decision process and allow them kind of um, freedoms that they previously didn't have, then you kind of have better outcomes for all. So it kind of similarly follows the idea that kind of freedom is the means to to development is kind of how it's the kind of tie I made. Yeah, I think that's actually not a takeaway I took or not, at least not a primary takeaway I initially took. But I do think that is something he, he emphasizes where he talks about. Um, I mean, he talks about the Standing Rock protest where we're going to assume that blocking the Dakota Access Pipeline is a win for the environment. Then his argument is that involving the people who have a very direct stake in what's going on, not economically, but in terms of this is the land that they live on, it's going to have more positive outcomes for the environment in general. And um, I read another Scientific American article recently that talks about sacred groves in India, which are tracts of land that have been project- protected for, in some cases, many, many centuries. Um, and the people who live locally are kind of in charge of maintaining the rules that govern that, what you can and can't do on that land. And in addition to obviously being successful in protecting those small pieces of land, it's also successful in maintaining a high level of biodiversity and protecting species that are being killed off in other areas. Um, And I guess it makes intuitive sense that uh, the people who use the land the most for their day-to-day living as opposed to just economic uh, gain have a vested interest in keeping the environment healthy. And then he goes on to discuss how often those people don't have a significant political voice. Um, And I think he gets into some really interesting uh, or at least somewhat interesting discussions about why it is that the people who benefit from using the land for economic gain have the most voice, but the people who are harmed by the potential negative consequences frequently don't have as much influence. This article was maybe three facts that were not obvious. Um, So... You know, one of them is there's researchers found that the population or rather the proportion of plants and animals threatened with extirpation or extinction is higher in countries with more unequal income distributions. Rates of deforestation are higher in countries with greater corruption. Public expenditure on environmental research and development and patents on environmental innovations are lower in industrial nations with greater income inequality. Um, Okay, so there's, there's a few facts like that that he throws in. But so many times this article, it's like, are you kidding? Like at the beginning of the article, um, once he gets past the intro, says when people who could benefit from using or abusing the environment mm-hmm. are economically and politically more powerful than those who could be harmed, the imbalance facilitates environmental degradation. Well, yeah, like when people have more political power, they take advantage of people with less political power. It, at one point, he says their joint effect can be described by a concept I call the power weighted social decision rule. It means that the weight assigned to the costs and benefits from environmentally degrading activities depends on the power <laughs> of the people to whom those accrue. This guy, what do you, what is that? I started, I started writing that down because I was like, 
oh, this is this is a really good point. This is a really good way of have more power. It. And then <laughs> I realized it meant oh, it's literally like power, people who have more power have more power. Have more it's in here like a hundred times. Are made. <laughs> yeah, obviously we understand. It's I don't know. I thought that like yeah, sure it is. Yeah, I, but I once know, once again, like, this well, guy's yeah, an economic obviously. professor. Right? There's, yeah, there's some interesting things in here, like I said, not not so many that I can quote anything else. But um, I don't know. It was just like this could have been a page long, not five. <laughs> I don't have a lot to add necessarily. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I guess I'll just say what one of my main takeaways was and it's pretty obvious but it's still worth mentioning uh why is it that those who benefit from environmental degradation can impose the environmental cost on others he talks about three possibilities one that the costs are deferred to future generations that were you know screwing over our kids and their their kids and it doesn't hurt us two the people who are being hurt are unaware of the negative effects um in particular in terms of pollution they may not realize what the health consequences are and three, the people are aware, but they lack political power. Pretty obvious. Um, but I think it's worth mentioning uh, because if we're going to identify, like, okay, what can we actually do about this? We need to look at what is the problem? Is the problem simply that we don't care about future generations? Or is the problem that there's a lack of education and knowledge that certain chemicals in our environment are hurting us? Um, I do think it's worth mentioning. I feel that the an overarching theme from all three and maybe of these that's all that articles is like if you if you already think that politics is mainly a game of money and power and there's there's not a lot of actual goodwill involved, then there's not much new. You know, like everything in these articles is attributable to that. Like if you thought that that things were working efficiently and the government was out to help you, you know, maybe this blew your mind, but. All everything we've read today is like people condemning the power trade-offs and like people taking advantage of their their position in society. And it's like, yeah, if you accept the one basic premise that that's true, nothing here should surprise you whatsoever. And this article was the most focused on that, I thought. Yeah, and I so I think that like, oh, I'm glad that people are pointing out these obvious like um, cause and effect relationships in our political system. Uh, because sometimes it feels that like no one's acknowledging the fact that, uh, for example, historically members of Native American tribes have had a very a relatively insignificant voice in how their land is being used, and that is hopefully changing. But maybe that information is pretty obvious and it's out there, and the ones who don't acknowledge it are not acknowledging it because they don't want to. And if they read these articles, it's probably not changing their minds. What I learned today, what I learned today can be distilled into one sentence. I do not need to subscribe to Scientific American. Yeah. <laughs> if they have a if they have a cooking app, I will consider it. I, I will say that a lot more Scientific American articles are more like the second one that we discussed rather than the other three in this uh in this series. Mainly because they're mostly not written by econo- professors of economics and political science. Um, I actually I did used to subscribe to Scientific American and I enjoyed it as a kid. So I ah thanks. Way to make me feel immature for subscribing (laughs) as a twenty four year old. But I was when I was a wee lad. I used to (laughs) like this book. It was cute. (laughs) 
<laughs> I like the pictures. Um, I don't know if we can do. I know for the previous book reviews, we've talked about like uh overall scores. I'm not sure if we can really do this for four independent articles, but I guess Ethan. Let's did, choose. Ethan gave the overall our thumbs favorite. down. Yeah, let's choose our favorite and least favorite articles, each of us. Just give a quick summary why. Andrew, you want to kick us off? Yeah, so I think the the last article was probably my least favorite, I think because it was generally pretty obvious. Um, and he, as kind of Ethan noted, wasn't making, I think, any a, a ton of novel points. Um, and maybe because, I mean, I, I don't know, I, I feel like I've kind of was already aware of like the like political decisions that had gone into like for example he talks about um like toxic waste sites placed in poor neighborhoods i mean it it, it didn't particularly seem like i was learning a lot although although it was interesting um i actually think not not maybe on its scientific merit but i think the first article was the one that I found most interesting because it grappled with difficult subjects, although maybe not well. Um, I thought it kind of, I mean, it took on like a kind of big problems of our day that, that no one seems to have a clear answer for. Um, so that's kind of how I'd break it down. Ethan. Um, I'm going to say the first was my least favorite, and I don't I don't feel that I need to go into that, because <laughs> if you've listened to the podcast, you've probably noticed. Um, my favorite was the health-wealth gap, the one about the uh, physical manifestations of stress from low socioeconomic status, because I thought that was actually novel, and I learned something from that, and it felt pretty rigorous and scientific. Uh, my least favorite was the third one, the talk about bias and algorithms for the same reasons that Andrew said the fourth one was his least favorite. Um, I think it pointed out problems that I didn't even point out anything ter- particularly new, even though I did defend it in our discussion. Um, didn't have a lot of great recommendations. And my favorite would be the second one. Uh, probably one, I do think it's very well written, but it may just be because I'm much more of a science nerd and enjoy reading about biology than I do economics. Uh, See, I will say I that I enjoy economics much more than biology, but I agree with you because this was the only good article. I, I will say that um, my views on the first one were pulled both ways by what Ethan and Andrew said. Um, I, I think I have a much more negative view now about his the methodology and the stuff he talks about based on some of the things Ethan pointed out. And I do agree with Andrew that uh, these are the questions that need to be discussed and maybe they should be discussed by professors of biology now. I think we just need economists who haven't won Nobel Prizes. If you if anybody's familiar with Krugman, who's this guy who also won a Nobel Prize and now writes for the New York Times. Writes the New York yeah, Times. And it's just yeah. kind of, in my opinion, just kind of an opinionated buffoon. Um, ba- ba- and, baboon? And buffoon. Yeah. <laughs> It's just it's just so frustrating because these these guys who have won awards in economics seem to feel they've just earned the right to make all these claims, and I don't see much evidence about it at all. And Krugman in particular is like sort of hostile, and I mean, there's a reason he writes for a newspaper. He gets to just kind of spew whatever he wants, but it's very frustrating to me. I don't know. gives gives economics a bad name, a topic that I really really like. It certainly makes it look bad. All right. Um, by the time this is out, Ethan's article that we've been teasing on 
GDP as a measure of national success should be. We'll be just six months away from publication. <laughs> uh, somewhere. We'll be somewhere along the publication process. Uh, publication? Publishing process. That's the one. Um, <laughs> let's check out our most recent Quick Hits podcast, and we'll see you guys next time. Thanks, everyone.